Celebration often includes all kinds of things. We've already done the celebrating part that included eating. Eating is often part of celebrating. We've done, usually have games and whatnot at celebrating. We've done that too. Music, we've started to do some music. I want to just continue that celebration with a bit of music because uh, that's part of a celebration. Now, I'm a, a music lover. I don't know how many of you in here are music lovers, but sometimes you know there is music and songs that are just so iconic that the second you hear the opening bars, you're like, oh, I know what that is. Do you have this experience? As soon as the song starts playing, you're like, oh, I know what it is. I'm going to test that theory and see if you really do. Now, in the past, when we've done these kind of gatherings all together with families and everyone, we've uh, just included the kids. I got kind of some pushback from that. People were like, what about us? So we're including everybody in this. We're doing a little bit of the name that tune game right now, just to kind of continue our celebration. Now, here's the rules. You're going to hear the opening bars of a song. If you put your hand up, I'm going to call on you. If you can tell me the name of the song and who's performing it, you're going to get one of these beauties. <laughs> now, there's only $5 on it. Don't get too excited. But here's the thing. Lest you become overzealous and you're like, oh, I know, and you put your hand up and you don't know the answer, you owe me five bucks. <laughs> so I just think that's fair. That's fair, right? So don't just shoot your hand up if you don't know. Okay, is everyone ready? No, I don't believe you. Is everyone ready? Yeah. All right. Let's do this. Let's hear the first one. Round two, round two, here we go. Where are you? No one's got the hand up, Susie Gibbon, do you know it? Jackson Five? What's the name of the song? No! No. I'm going to be rich by the end of this thing. Yes. Thank you. I want you back. But by Jackson 5, yes. So you guys had the band right. The song, I Want You Back. All right, round three. Prepare yourselves. Okay. <laughs> what is it? What's the song called? Let it go, Elsa. Had <laughs> <laughs> a rough start, but you did it. Okay, here we go. Round four. have an answer already. Of course you knew this, John. I thought you would get this. 
What is it? What? Jimmy, yep. Dave was not expecting to hear Jimi Hendrix on Easter Sunday, but maybe nobody was. All right, here we go, last one. This is round five. This is the final round. Are you ready? practically see the Canucks skating out right now as, <laughs> as it happens. That's right. You too, pride in the name of love. Some of you will remember this if you know that song well. The verse that sings, early morning, April 4, shot rang out through a Memphis sky, free at last. They took your life, but they could not take your pride. That's the third verse from this kind of iconic U2 song, Pride in the Name of Love, uh, where it, the, the song, apparently, according to Bono, he, he wrote this song kind of to, to explore, to look at the different uses, the different sides of power that we see throughout the world. And this verse in particular, paying homage to the late reverend and civil rights activist, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was martyred in the midst of his tireless pursuit of freedom, equality for all, regardless of the color of their skin. And although the seeds of Dr. King's efforts to end racism and segregation eventually produced an incredible harvest, although we would all agree there's, there's more work to be done there, initially, anyways, there was great civil unrest. It was interesting. I was asking some people this past week who, who were alive during that time, and all across the world, Canada, UK, into South Africa, everywhere, people knew about the death of this man when it happened. And it created, his assassination created this, this really uh, weird uh, mass kind of hysteria where people were just devastated, they were, they were sad, they were disillusioned, profound grief. Why? Well, because they had hoped that Dr. King was going to be the hero that brought about an end to these social evils. We see his dream of equality realized at last, but now, and now he was dead. And his dream, it seemed, would die along with him. I'm going to invite you right now, if you have a Bible with you, or if you want to turn to this Bible in front of you, to read about a story that has some very interesting parallels to that scene in history from Luke, Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, starting at verse 13. What's going on here now? Just before this, some of Jesus' followers have come to the tomb and found it's empty, there's some angels there saying, he's not here, he's risen, go tell everybody. These ladies, they run to tell the disciples and everyone, hey, the tomb's empty. These angels said he's risen. They don't believe them. They're not willing to, to follow through with what they said. Peter goes to check it out, but he doesn't see Jesus. 
Now, verse 13, listen. Now, on that same day, so that's, this is the Sunday morning, same day, two of them, two of these disciples of Jesus, uh, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened, and as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. And one of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem? Do you not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things? He asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, a prophet, powerful in the word and deed before God and all the people, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but did not find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And then he, that is Jesus, said to them, How foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going to go further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he stayed, in, uh, so he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. That's not disappeared like, you know, when it's the end of the meal, you've gone up to dinner with your friends, and everyone seems to vanish. Like, literally, he disappeared, disappeared from their sight. Then they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked to us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Once they returned, they got to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those who were with them assembled together and saying, It's true, the Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized to them when he broke the bread. That's God's word. Now, although they're centuries apart, what we see here in this part of the Easter story is a very similar response from Jesus' followers following his death three days earlier at the hands of the religious rulers and the Romans. They're just, much like you, you saw, if you look at the news reports after King's death, they're just walking around in a fog. They don't know what's, what to think, what to do anymore. Uh, devastated by the loss of their leader, verse 21 here tells us, because they had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. That was their hope all along, and now it was like, well, what are we supposed to do now? Now, where do, we, where do we go from here? That seems to be what they're all thinking. Now, we learn as we keep reading here in this story, and this is where the stories diverge. They, they, they separate quite significantly. Earlier that morning, some of the women, they, they'd gone by the tomb where Jesus was buried to anoint his body with spices, which was kind of a typical thing they did in this culture to honor the dead. But when they got there, they found that the tomb was empty, and these two angels telling them, he's not here, he's risen. I'm pretty sure I checked the news articles. I didn't see anything like this happening after Martin Luther King died. But here, amazing things are going on, and they don't know what to do with it yet. 
Some of Jesus' other followers, including Peter, they, they run to the tomb and check it out. They find the tomb empty, just like the women said. But Jesus, they, they don't see him. They don't see a, a resurrected Jesus alive. But considering all that, all I want to talk with us together about this morning, just for a few minutes, is just one question. Because you see, although they hadn't seen Jesus physically resurrected yet, his followers, they had all the facts of his resurrection in front of them, right? All the facts were there. They had, there was this empty tomb. There, there were these angels telling them, hey, Jesus has risen. He's alive now. And if you look at verse 6 a little bit higher, they had a reminder that Jesus himself had said, hey, I'm going to be crucified. And then I'm, on the third day, I'm going to rise again. They had all these reminders. They had all the information in front of them. And yet still... Their hearts remained cold and unmoved. Their eyes remained blinded to the reality of Jesus' resurrection. Even though, look, the resurrected Jesus is walking right beside him. They, they, they can't see him. Now, yes, verse 16 tells us their eyes were initially, anyway, kept from recognizing him. And as we go on here, we'll, we'll see why Jesus thought that was a good idea. But the question I want to talk to with us this morning is this. Whether or not we don't have the exact same reaction to Jesus' resurrection today. That although the, the facts, the, the information about Jesus' resurrection are, are in front of us as well, we have the very same facts in front of us, our hearts remain unmoved, our eyes remain blind to the reality of it, or seeing what difference it makes, why this even matters to us today. And I'm saying this could be true of you whether you say you're a follower of Jesus or not. These guys were followers of Jesus. That was their response. And if that's where you're at this morning, I'm praying that just like these two disciples we saw here, that God would begin to ignite a fire within you, within all of our hearts today, that all of our eyes would be opened in a spiritual sense anyway, to see Jesus for who he truly is. And as we read about this resurrection Easter morning, that that same experience would happen to us today. Because here's the thing, you see, if Jesus' resurrection, it's, the reason it's such a big celebration to us is because it's, it's the miracle upon which this whole Bible, actually the entire Christian faith, rises or falls. This miracle of resurrection that we're talking about today, it all hangs on this. Because think about this, if the disciples actually just hid Jesus' body, made up this whole story about him rising from the dead? Well, first of all, what does that mean? Jesus was, he was a liar and fake, or at least he was delusional because he told people he was God and that he was going to rise again from the dead. If that didn't really happen, he's totally a fake. And if that's not true, the whole Christian religion, it's just all hashtag fake news, discarded, who cares? And then, really, if none of that's true, what are we, what are we doing here today? What's the point of any of this? Who cares what a Jewish rabbi said 2,000 years ago? So what? That was nice that he lived a good life. Good for him. But if the resurrection is true, if, if this is something that really happened, he really did rise from the dead like he said he was going to, and this information we have about the resurrection, these, these facts, points to a, a true physical reality, well, then this is a moment in history that changed everything. It changed everything for all time and offered hope for freedom at a level that Dr. King could have never even imagined bringing about. 
And in order to see how it is that Jesus brought about this heart response change in the lives of these two disciples and all of his followers eventually, I want to look at it from this passage here and hopefully with the hope that we too might see the goodness of this and want that same heart change in ourselves as well. So in order to see how Jesus did this, I want to look at this passage in just two ways. We're going to look at the truth of Jesus' resurrection from the scriptures and then the meaning of Jesus' resurrection from the scriptures. The truth of the resurrection, the meaning of the resurrection revealed in the scriptures. So keep your Bibles open. We're going to be up and down singing, talking about this. Keep your Bibles open to this part of Luke and follow along with me as we work through this and learn about it together. Okay, so let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. The, the, the truth of Jesus' resurrection revealed in the scriptures, the truth of it. Now, there's about a thousand things that I feel like I'd like to talk about in this, but we're just going to talk about one. I want, to show, I want to talk about and just focus on what we see this resurrected Jesus doing in verses 25 through 27. If you still have that passage open, look at it with me. Verses 25 to 27. Now, if you remember what we just read leading up to these verses, some of Jesus' followers have come to his tomb and found it empty. And the reason it's empty, according to these two angels who show up out of nowhere and scare the pants off these ladies, is because Jesus is no longer there. Note, not because somebody took the body, but according to them, but because he's risen. That's what they're saying. But because at this time in culture anyway, uh, a woman's testimony was not seen as reliable. Uh, you, it wasn't even admissible in court, actually. So they come and they tell everybody about this, but they don't believe him. But then, you know, the, they, these guys come to check it out for themselves. Peter comes to check it out, but they don't see any risen Jesus. All they seem to do is just find more emptiness, more questions. The news ends up being more confusing than comforting, more, more hurtful than helpful. And as these two disciples in particular are heading home from Jerusalem, just trying to wrap their heads around everything that's gone on, all that's happened this morning, still clearly in shock and grief over the death of Jesus, who should walk up alongside them, just stroll up beside them, but the resurrected Jesus himself? Now again, we already said, verse 16 tells us that they were kept from recognizing Jesus, but I wonder if another part of that isn't just that they weren't even expecting to see him. You ever had that happen? You're not expecting to see someone, and they're, they're there, and you don't even recognize them? And I'll just try this sometime. Kids, show up at your parents' workplace unexpected. <laughs> Throw some papers on the desk and say, I want these back by 5 o'clock, and just see how long it takes them to recognize you. you don't, we don't process it that way, and I think that's a little bit of what's going on here. Now, I don't think Jesus is trying to be funny or tricky here, just kind of mess with their minds, but you've got to admit, the conversation they have together is pretty crazy, right? Like... It would be like walking up to a group of uh, crying people consoling one another in Paris last week and asking them, oh, what's everyone crying about? What's the problem? I mean, you, you can almost hear the barely veiled cynicism in this guy Cleopas, verse 18, when he's like, um, are you the only person in Jerusalem that doesn't know the things that have just happened here? Everything that's just gone on these past few days, but I love it. Jesus just keeps playing along. Verse 19, he's like, oh, no, no, what things? Tell me more. I love this. And, and, and it's, it's really just like, I think he's drawing them out. He, he wants to kind of hear them. You tell me what just happened. I want to hear your perspective. What do, you, what do you think just happened here? But after recounting their story and including their 
disappointment as well as their amazement at this report from the women who visited the tomb early in the next morning. Jesus finally, he breaks the silence, and there in verse 25, he says to them, how foolish you are and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. That's what I want to focus on right there, because that alone, I think we see something really powerful about the truth of Jesus' resurrection, because I don't know if, you, if this stood out to you as well, but did you notice, here's the resurrected Jesus right there in front of these guys. He's walking with them. Now, now wouldn't it have just been easier to remove whatever blindness is going on, whatever veils over their eyes, and just be like, hey, yo, it's me, I'm alive, check me out. Why wouldn't he do that? Way easier. He's with them right now. Why not just rip open the veil? Here I am. Why doesn't he do that? Instead, what we see Jesus doing first, now he does that later, but first what he does, he takes them to the scriptures. He takes them to the Bible and takes them through the most epic Bible study ever. Really, I mean, this, at this time, it would have just been the Old Testament scriptures, walking them through the scriptures from Genesis all the way to Malachi and just going like, and here, and then here, here, let's flip over to Exodus. Oh, there I am again. Here, here, here. Takes them through the whole thing. I mean, I don't know how long this was. He takes them through the whole thing, showing them again and again how, how the whole thing, thousands of years of history, all coming together, pointing directly to him and what he would accomplish through his death and resurrection when he came. You notice later in verse 32, look over there, when Jesus finally does you know, open up the, their eyes, pull back the veil, and reveal it, who he truly is just before he vanishes. It's this Bible study that he took them through that they point back to and say, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? That's the thing they point back to. And remember, I mean, have you ever felt an experience like this in your own life, just a burning in the heart? Maybe it was like a professor explaining some concept in a class that you'd, you'd never understood before. Maybe it's a friend helping you see how all the Avenger films connect together. And, and just the, the dots are connecting, lights are going on, and they're not, they're not doing anything dramatic. They're not, there's no light show. There's nothing crazy. They're just explaining something you'd never considered before, you'd never seen before, and it's just blowing your mind. Have you, have you had an experience like that before? I think that's what's going on here. As he points out this stuff, they're like, I, I've never seen this. I've never known this was here. He's not doing the dramatic thing. He's not blowing up the sky. Ah, I'm here. I'm resurrected. He just takes them on this simple Bible study. It's a very simple, non-dramatic thing. And I think sometimes this is the thing that holds us back from believing in the truth of the resurrection as well. Because although we have the same facts and information about that in front of us today, we're waiting for some big dramatic thing to happen. Some skies torn open, some kind of Apostle Paul, you know, Jesus showing up, bam, you know, I don't know, a voice from heaven, face of Jesus burning to your grilled cheese sandwich, something <laughs> dramatic that happens, we're waiting for that, instead of realizing that the very same eye-opening, heart-fire-stirring, life-transforming revelation of Jesus can be found within the pages of this very ordinary, there's no light shooting out of this scripture that we are holding in our hands right now. It's here. This, this book we're holding in our hands right now, that means this is 
the revelation of Jesus to us right now, of, of his truth, the fact that he is resurrected. That's what we have here. And that's what Jesus showed them by taking them through this Bible. And as you learn that all these stories, every story you read in this book is actually about him, it just changes everything. You begin to see things that you never saw yourself before. Uh, everything from like all the way back at the beginning of Genesis, the seed of the woman promised to come, uh, the, the ark that saves Noah and his family from destruction, uh, Abraham's son given and then received back, a lamb slain that, that frees Israel from this plague of death and then frees them from slavery in Egypt, just over and over and over again, story after story, pointing to Jesus and what he accomplished 2,000 years ago in his death and resurrection for all who believe in him. It's amazing. Now, what, what did he accomplish? Why did Jesus have to die and suffer at all? And what is his resurrection? If it truly happened, what does it mean for us today? That's what we're going to talk about next. All right. Now, second point. You're doing well. You're holding on well. Thank you. We're going to talk about the meaning of Jesus' resurrection revealed in the scriptures. We looked at the truth of it. Now let's look at the meaning of it. Why does it matter? Quick question for you. How many of you have seen the Disney Pixar film Finding Nemo? Who's seen this before? I should say who hasn't seen it. Okay, it's a couple of people. That's, that's okay. There's no judgment here. That's good. If you've seen the film before, you know there's this scene right near the beginning when uh, Nemo is taken, he's stolen by these divers, and his father, Marlin, is going on this crazy search to try to find, where's my son? I can't find my son. Only to finally find this strange blue fish named Dory. And when he finds Dory, he believes he's found in her the solution to his crisis. She's going to be the one who can tell him where his son is. Only to find pretty quickly that no, Dory can barely remember meeting you five minutes after that happened. <laughs> let alone tell you which direction a boat went half an hour ago. So, not so helpful. The, the reason I mention that is because... When you try to understand the meaning of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection three days later, it's important to know that for the Jewish people, they had a very particular kind of rescue in mind when this Messiah finally came. When this rescuer came, they had a very specific idea of what that would look like. Okay, so for them, what that meant was freedom from Roman rule. They're right now invaded by the Romans. They're taken over. When the Messiah comes, this rescuer, he's going to free us from that. We're going to be returned to this sovereign state of Israel, like back in the days of King David. They certainly had no concept, though, of this rescuer being a, a savior who would suffer and die. So that's why they're so messed up by this. And we need to know that. Otherwise, it makes no sense when these disciples are describing Jesus here in our passage, this, this powerful prophet of God, uh, doing all these amazing things that the religious rulers then put to death. When they add in verse 21, when they say, but we had hoped that he would be the one who was going to redeem Israel. We know now what they meant by that was, we thought this promised one, this promised rescuer was going to free us from all these awful circumstances. You know, make, make Israel great again. That's what we thought was going to happen. But obviously, you know, he died. So I guess we were wrong. That, that's the feeling. Like, we put all our hope in this, but I guess... He isn't who we thought he was. He, he, he's not the Messiah. And honestly, the truth is, when, when it comes to discussions about faith, 
what you think about Jesus today and why he came, we can have a very similar answer to the, this question as these two disciples. Where we have the facts and information about Jesus' resurrection in front of us here, but because we had hoped that the reason Jesus came was going to be to rescue us from, well, all kinds of different things. We thought, Jesus, if I come to Jesus, he's going to rescue me from, you know, the feeling of, of being rejected by that loved one or that friend. He's going to free me from the stress of financial difficulty, losing a job. He's going to rescue me from my parents getting divorced. He's going to rescue me from, I don't know, lifelong illness or, or, or having to deal with depression. He's going to do that. And because we had hoped that Jesus coming was going to free us and rescue us from all those circumstances, when that's not how it works out, when he doesn't, we reason that, okay, well then I guess the resurrection must not be true. Whoever this Jesus said he was, it's not, it's not true. Because he didn't bring about the freedom that I had hoped he would bring. But you got to hear me, listen. When you come to Jesus and you understand the reason why he actually came, the reason why he actually came to earth, died and rose again, you realize that believing in Jesus to rescue you from those things is the same as Marlon believing in Dory to rescue him from his lost son. It's about as effective. And listen, no, not because Jesus is forgetful like Dory, that, you know, he's just up in heaven right now being, shoot, I was supposed to rescue you from Roman oppression too. Sorry, guys, my bad. Or, or trying to say that those circumstances, those hard life circumstances don't matter to Jesus. Yes, they do. But because the reason Jesus came to die was to accomplish a far, far greater rescue than that. And this now, listen, this is where understanding what we just learned in the last point about how all the stories of the Bible being about Jesus becomes super, super important to us now because I'm just going to give us two. Just two that kind of illustrate this point. Now, when you hear about Adam and Eve in the garden, rebelling against God, and then they have to leave his presence, and because they have to leave his presence, now they can die. Now death comes into their lives. It begins to make way more sense when you see, oh, okay, so Jesus is the promised rescuer that God said he was going to send. If he's that seed of the woman who's going to come and defeat sin and death and fix the broken relationship with God, okay, so that starts to make sense now. How's he going to accomplish it? How's he going to accomplish that rescue? Well, because we learned in Genesis, sin is the thing that separates us from God, then someone's going to have to deal with that sin problem. Who's going to deal with the sin problem? Okay, the promised rescuer. He's got to deal with it because we're all infected now with the disease. We've all got the sin on us. We need someone who doesn't have the disease who can deal with it. If you, it sounds crazy, I know. If you can think of the Bible like a, a, a zombie movie, we've all been bitten. Everyone's got bitten by the zombie. We can't be free now. We need someone who hasn't been bitten who can give us the cure that will free us from the, whatever that is, zombiness. That's what sin is like. It's something that infects all of us, and we need someone who can free us from this infection. That's where stories, here's the second one, stories like the Exodus, the Passover, come in where we learn about this final plague of death that was going to pass through the land of Egypt, kill all the firstborn sons, but God's people, they're told they can be rescued if they kill a spotless lamb and put its blood on the doorposts of their homes so that when God's judgment comes, it will literally pass over their homes, freeing them from the judgment if they've killed a substitute in their place. That's going to be the thing that frees them, which was a historical event, but that points ahead 
all the way to Jesus and how he would deal with our sin problem when he came, offering up his life as a sinless sacrifice, becoming sin for us. The Apostle Paul tells in 2 Corinthians 5, so that through the punishment of him, he takes the punishment for our sins that we deserve on himself. He pays the debt that we owe, and then his perfect obedience is credited to us. That's what that substitute looks like, a substitute paid in our place. That's what that Old Testament passage is pointing us to. It's about Jesus. And interestingly, you notice when they say in verse 21, they say, we we had hoped he was going to redeem Israel. That word redeem literally means to buy something back, to purchase back something that's been lost. It's to pay a ransom. Like when someone's been kidnapped and you pay the ransom, you redeem them from that slavery. But we learn through that Exodus passage is that Jesus is the one who pays the ransom. He pays the ransom at the cost of his life. So now, listen, this is what the resurrection means. This is what we're celebrating today. It means when God raises up Jesus, it means he accepts his payment on our behalf as payment in full. That's what the resurrection is all about. It means he accepted the payment. It means that now that broken relationship that we have with God can now be fixed again. It means the sin that used to just rule over us, we had no power to overcome it, is now broken. It means that death itself, he now has the power so that even though it can touch us, it can't ultimately have the final word. One day, when you close your eyes in death, if you have put your hope in this same resurrected Jesus, it means you can have hope that he will raise you up too. That's what the whole point of the resurrection is. That's why we're celebrating today. That's why churches all around the world today are going to eat Celebrate, sing, dance, do all these things today because Jesus' resurrection is the moment in history when everything changes. If this truly happened, everything changed this morning. And hope that was lost could once again be restored because of what he did. Because he paid the ransom for us and broke those powers of sin and death and then rose again showing his victory over those things. And it's worthy of celebration. We've been doing all kinds of things to celebrate today. Somebody uh, named Lauren Daigle, maybe you've heard of, she wrote this incredible song, which speaks about, I think, I guess you could just say what it feels like. What does it feel like when you finally come to see the truth of the resurrection and, and understand what it means for you today? It's this really beautiful song with lyrics that, that speak about what that feels like, and Part of the celebration is also dancing. We've got someone in our congregation who is an amazing dancer, who put together a dance to go along with this, which I think pictures really beautiful, really beautifully what that feels like when you come to understand the joy of this, understand the, the hope that's offered here. And so she was gracious enough to let us record it because there's no way she could do it on this tiny stage. So we're going to watch this now and just celebrate along with uh, churches all around the world today what the hope of the resurrection means. Daughter 
free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. I was going to do that because I've wanted to do that since I became a pastor, but he does it so much better. Free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. That, that's how, if you didn't know, that's how Dr. King ended his famous 1963 address, I Have a Dream, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in D.C. A, a dream of unity between races and ethnicities, classes and sexes, denominations and churches. A dream of freedom for all the citizens of this planet Earth, regardless of the color of their skin. And yet even Dr. King knew the hope for this freedom could not ultimately be achieved by uh, just changing the laws in the land. It couldn't be achieved by improved social structures. It could only be achieved by a changed heart. The heart needed to change because it's, it's the reason those things exist. The reason we have racism, the reason we have injustice in the world isn't just because we haven't figured it out yet. It's because of our hearts and what's wrong in here. And so even Dr. King knew on his own, just changing laws and these things wouldn't bring about the change. It would be a heart that was caught on fire by the truths of Jesus and transformed by the hope and the meaning of the resurrection, what it meant to break the power of sin and death, to break the thing inside us that causes these things to happen. Even he knew that. What we celebrate today is a singular, unparalleled victory in the resurrection of Jesus. The, the facts of it now plainly before us. We've seen the, the first response that Jesus' disciples had and then their gradual awakening to the understanding of the far greater freedom that Jesus came to bring than just bringing a a new Israel that could be in power again, they understood, you, you've come to bring so much more freedom than we could have even imagined you could bring. The only thing left to determine for us now is what our own response will be to it. What is, what is your response to the facts and the information about Jesus' resurrection? We've got an empty tomb. We've got the witness of these angels saying he's risen again. We've got the witness recorded for us now of previously unbelieving disciples who had come to see this risen Christ and believed that he was alive and risen so much so that they were willing to die for that truth. We've got all these examples in front of us, all the evidence in front of us. How will you respond to it? Will your heart remain unmoved, eyes blinded to the reality of who Jesus is? is and the purpose of his coming, the purpose of his death and resurrection, or will the truth and the meaning of Jesus' resurrection stir a flame in your heart for the hope of the freedom that he truly came to offer you? Set your heart ablaze. My, my prayer and hope for every single one of us here today is that maybe for the hundredth time or maybe for the very first time, our response to the facts and the information about Jesus' resurrection that we celebrate this morning might create a church building, a city, a world filled today with burning hearts. Amen.